Hello and welcome back to the Over 2 Podcast. This is episode number 7. This is actually the second time trying to record this episode. Last record, the last recording, which was number 6. Uh, some info I want to go over real quick. Uh, X7 was not the one who struck rock. It was the X6. And re- partly the reason why I didn't say their numbering for each one is because I didn't remember that. And that's a good thing I didn't because I got the first one wrong. Uh, also, another incorrect piece of information, it was not a B-25, it was a B-24, and the R-3 that I was talking about when I was joking is not over to related, it was just something I wanted to say. Um, <clears throat> another piece of news, uh, this will be the last episode of this kind of format. Um, essentially, what this is going to mean in the change of format is it's going to be over a singular topic. It will be longer, but also, it will also mean there will be no guests, and it will take longer to upload each one because it will take a lot more time to create one of the other, one of those. So, currently, what I am planning on is, currently, this is being recorded on Friday, December 8th. Uh, the next episode that I'm planning to record is on Tuesday, December 19th. Um, however, if I cannot complete that big episode by then... It would, the next episode will be in January but if I do complete that episode on time, the next episode is planned to be on January 11th on Thursday uh, so yeah, that's currently what I'm looking towards I'm changing this podcast up a little bit, changing things to get better information that's more accurate um, a lot of these things that I've already said that like the attacks on turpits, I might go over those and completely recreate those and make them a lot better um so a lot more research will go into there those but it will take a lot longer to create these podcasts because i have to do more research and all that stuff but it'll mean way better quality way better info all that stuff <clears throat> so anyway another last piece of news maybe um currently we are creating these new podcasts called bear claw um what i'm going to do is i'm going to go over a little bit to kind of prelude to my Bear Claw episode, which will be on Tuesday, the 12th of December. Um, so I'm going to kind of line up for that, because if I pull up, hold on, give me one second. If I pull this up, it has what we're going to go over in that will be should the U.S. have entered the war earlier. Which theater do you think was more important, European or Pacific? Should we have used the atomic bombs? And what would the world look like if the Allies had lost? And no, I will not be going over any of that in this episode. No. Because I don't want to ruin that. Um, but what, however, what I will be going over this episode is kind of lining stuff up and getting ready for that so I can go back and recall. Um, anyways... What I want to do for this podcast is I want to kind of talk about the Japanese economy in World War II. I want to talk about um, markings on tanks and markings on aircraft. Uh, I also want to talk about some, maybe some German tanks if we get to that a little bit later. Uh, I also want to talk about the ME-163 again and um, redo the info on that a little bit get that a little bit better and some other prototype German aircraft and I also 
want to talk about a American uh, prototype aircraft. So that's kind of what I want to do today, and that's kind of what's going on right now. So let's hop into this and get this on the road. Uh, the Japanese economy in World War II was not of great scale. Um, of course, they built the mighty battleship the Yamato and her sister ship, which unfortunately I cannot remember right now. Um, they were very, very strong battleships. They housed the biggest guns ever seen, ever seen combat on the high seas in the Pacific, and they were extremely armored. And the Yamato was the most famous ship, especially her sinking, which her explosion from her main magazine could have been seen from mainland Japan. Um, so her, the Japanese economy in World War II was not of great scale. Um, mainly they reserved their steel for building warships and building up their navy. They didn't allocate a lot of steel for tank production or aircraft production for that matter. Uh, which is why you see the A6M2 being so weak is because it has very little armor. They don't want to armor their aircraft, they want speed and maneuverability. And they also want gun, gun power. But they didn't have the armor on any of those aircraft, such as the G4M1 bomber, their torpedo bombers, their B5N2s, which are the torpedo bombers, uh, the A6M2s, which are their fighters, and they, uh, they didn't put armor on those. Not a lot. Uh, not a lot. Not a lot. Let's just say that. Some of the aircraft were made out of wood. Uh, they weren't really allocating a lot of steel for their aircraft. Uh, for their tanks, they had Chihas, Chihis, Kachis. Well, Kachis were a prototype. They're this huge tank, which I don't even know why they came up with this idea. It wasn't very practical. The Kachi was supposed to be taken by a submarine and then launched from that submarine to land on the beach. You can see pictures of these because they did build some of these. Uh, the Kachi was meant to be launched from a submarine, apparently. Um, it was very, very large. It had a big pontoon on the back and a big pontoon on the front, which also act, acted as spaced armor. But its gun was not of great scale, and its armor was very weak. However, that spaced armor on the front could be very useful against heat shells. However, heat shells were not used in great scale in World War II. But they were, heat shells were used for rocket-propelled projectiles, such as the M1 Bazooka, the Panzerfaust, the Panzerschreck. Those used heat warheads. However, tank shells did not really use heat. We do use heat today, such as the M1 Abrams uses heat. The T90s use heat. Um, and the Leopards also use heat, but the main shell we use today is APFSDS. Which, what does APFSDS mean? Armor piercing, fin stabilized, discarding Sabo. Um, the Kachi had, I believe, a crew of six and had a very, very large cupola. Um, there was also the Kami. Which was it's it's a, it's a smaller amphibious tank, way smaller, 
it would make more sense in practice if it was to be launched from submarines like they wanted it to uh, as it was smaller its gun I think was the same size I'm not entirely sure uh, it had less armor and it was still amphibious and had good speed unlike the Kachi <clears throat> Uh, Japanese tanks were of relatively low armor. They did not have as much armor as you would like, ranging from maybe around 20 millimeters to 30, 40. It was not as much as what we had in our Shermans that were seen in the Pacific, having tough front plates. And the Japanese had tough times going through American Shermans with their guns on their tanks, their guns on their tanks were not of great scale. Um, so what they decided to do to overcome this was they would take a very, very lightly armored chassis and put a big gun on it. Uh, they mainly used naval guns because they had a surplus of those because they were building up their navy. Um, so what they did is they put those on, on lightly armored chassis and they used those against our Shermans, such as the Chiha Long Gun, I think. I think, yeah, Chiha Long Gun, which is a unarmored chassis open top with a 120 millimeter naval gun on it um, the Japanese also wanted to create uh, prototype tanks that were heavily armored you had the oi you had the ho ri prototype which is a tank destroyer with which is actually a very good tank destroyer um, had had it had more armor on the sides, it probably would have been good. But from the front, the Ho Ri was actually a very good prototype tank destroyer. Um, what they also started to do was with their Chiha tanks, which was their mainline tank, was Chiha, is most common. Um, what they decided to do is they wanted to take the gun that they had on the Chiha off. And they put a 120mm howitzer on it and essentially used that as artillery fire support. Um, but they, they also did uh, install flamethrowers on their tanks. As, we, as the British did too, they had their Churchill Crocodile, which pulled a trailer behind it, which was filled, filled with gasoline. And the, they had a flamethrower on the front of the tank. Uh, the Italians did that as well. They had their L333 and they would pull a trailer behind it. Same style, pull a gasoline, and its gun was a flamethrower. You also had uh, Germans, especially loved their flamethrowers. They had the Flampanzer III, which was a Panzer III with a uh, flamethrower for a gun. You had the Fleming Jagdtiger, which was a Jagdtiger with a flamethrower. Very, very odd since the Jagdtiger was a casemate. Um, and you also had the Flam Tiger, which was a Tiger One with a flamethrower. They love their flamethrowers. Uh, as far as I have seen, I haven't heard of too many American tanks using flamethrowers, but I'm sure they're out there. I have no doubt of that, as we did use our M1 flamethrower a lot, uh, especially during D-Day to clear um, bunkers. Uh, so the Japanese, they liked the flamethrowers. They used them essentially as torture devices. Uh, they would burn American POWs is what they would do with those. They would also use them in combat, but mainly used for torturing POWs and executing POWs. Um, 
So the Japanese did not allow a lot of steel for their tank production or aircraft production. They mainly allocated steel for their warship production. But also they didn't have a lot of resources to work with. Um, the, mainly what they had to work with was manpower. They had a lot of manpower. And they had a very, very um, strict military discipline. Uh, soldiers would fight to the very end and would even kill themselves before being captured. Um, there's a cliff, I think it was on Okinawa, that uh, Japanese soldiers knew they were going to be captured because our American Marines were pushing up and gaining ground. And what they, what they didn't want was to be captured. And there's, there's this cliff and I believe around a couple hundred of Japanese soldiers jumped off and some even civilians jumping off with their children off that cliff. Um, Japanese would go for to any length to avoid being captured. However, some did surrender themselves to to the Americans. Uh, some doing it purposefully with a grenade attached to themselves to hopefully take out a couple Americans while going down at the same time. However, some were actually surrendering. Um, the Japanese had that strict discipline for their military. Um, according from one thing that I have seen, I believe they were trying to train uh, civilians. Well, they were. They were doing this, but uh, they were training civilians on their homeland to how to hold a rifle. Even kids, how to hold a rifle. So that way, if we did land on um, Japanese homeland, uh, their civilians would also fight with the military against the Americans that are invading their homeland. Uh, okay. So, that's essentially what I wanted to talk about for the Japanese uh, side of the war. <clears throat> now I want to kind of move on towards over towards the German side of things again. Uh, the ME-163 I've already talked about before a little bit. Um, since then I've looked at it a little bit more. Uh, the fuel is called T-STOFF, which is T-S-T-O-F-F, T-STOFF. Um, very, very dangerous stuff, and I can give more details on how the crash of that ace um, happened. What happened was that ace is taking off, and they have this essentially a rolly. So when the ME163 is taking off, because the ME163 does not have a does not have landing gear, it has a skid. Um, so what they did is they had this rolly, and that rolly would jettison when the ME163 took off and it was safely land back on the ground. Well, not land, it would kind of hit the ground. And it didn't have wings, so it just kind of fell. But, you get what I mean. So the ME-163 worked that way. Um, what happened during that crash was that Roly was jettisoned too early, which then bounced off the runway and then up back into the ME-163's fuselage, which damaged the ME-163 and caused... A, the Lafrafa Ace piloting the ME-163 to crash land short of the runway. Well, not short of the runway, but off the runway in the, the field. Um, which then crew immediately rushed over to their Ace that had just crashed his Comet, 
the Amy 163, was nicknamed Comet, K-O-M-E-T. Um, so they rushed over to him. Uh, the T-Stoff line in the co cockpit had been severed. So T-Stoff was being poured into the cockpit. Uh, when they got to the Luftwaffe Ace, his legs were mush, almost gone. One of his arms was gone. And his head was essentially slime, as they described it. T-Stoff is not something you want on you. We'll say that, because it can almost essentially delete you from existence in seconds. <coughs> so, now let's kind of look towards other German prototype aircraft. Uh, you had the ME-264, nicknamed America Bomber, which, hence the name, was supposed to bomb America itself. Um, it wasn't ever used in combat. It was just a prototype that was being looked into. Um, it was decided that this was not a good idea, as the Luftwaffe was already falling and suffering from fuel, fuel sword shortages, and... So the, the ME-264 was never put into full production, which was a good thing, as the ME-264 ME could reach America and bomb America. However, they were not able to build those, and they weren't reasoning to build those, because the Luftwaffe was already going on the defensive instead of the offensive, and was already starting to suffer from fuel shortages. Um, so... That's what the Luftwaffe was going on at that time. It was not in the position it had been before. And so the ME-264 was not put into production. Um, an American aircraft that I do want to talk about is the American Bell P-59 Aereo Comet. Uh, a lot of people regard the ME-262 as the first operational jet fighter, but we'll look into that first operational jet fighter. Uh, the Bell P-59 Aereo Comet is an American jet fighter uh, built before the ME-262 was built. Uh, this was a very, this was an aircraft that the government wanted to hide. And so what they did, and this is funny, what they did is they strapped like this wooden structure that looked like, like looked like propellers on the front of the aircraft. It was actually being propelled by two jet engines in the back, or one, I can't remember. Um, but what they did is if any uh, American naval aviator spotted the aircraft and flew alongside it, because those propellers are not moving, they were just strapped to the front of the aircraft to make it look like they had propellers from far away. But if any aviator flew too close to that, what they did is they had the test test pilot who was in that cockpit of flying the Bell P-59 Aerial Comet, they dressed him up in a gorilla suit. So that way, if any naval aviator landed back on the carrier and said, hey, I saw this, this aircraft, its propellers were not moving, but it was going really fast. And they said the guy in the cockpit was, was a gorilla. They just dismiss him as, dismiss him as being crazy and insane, hence covering up their jet fighter project as that, so that was very, very smart, because if they say, hey, I've seen, I see a, I've seen a gorilla 
flying an aircraft with no propellers moving, but it's going really, really fast, you'd think they're insane. Because according to anyone else, there's no aircraft in the world that can move without propellers at that time. And there was no aircraft that can move without propellers at that time. Because the ME-262 was not a thing yet. Neither was the ME-163. So there were no jets in the world except for that one. And so they put a guy in a gorilla suit in the cockpit, and they said, hey, there's a guy in a gorilla, gorilla costume flying this jet thing. You'd think they're crazy. And so that's what they did, and it worked. Uh, so the Bell B-59 aerial comet was actually the first jet fighter in the world, but never saw combat. It was never used in combat, never went to any of the theaters, and remained just a prototype. Uh, I want to kind of move towards a little more German tanks. I don't believe I've talked about this one. The VK-16.02 Leopard. I believe that's what it is. Give me one second to check that info. Yes, the VK-16.02 Leopard. Uh, if you just look up Leopard, you're going to find the Leopard 1A2s, which are modern German tanks. You have to put VK 16.02 Leopard, which would give you the World War II Leopard. Uh, essentially, what this was is a German light tank uh, designed with a 20 millimeter autocannon. Very, very fast and agile, but had very light armor. Um, in practice, this could be good against anti infantry roles and against light skinned targets such as half tracks and trucks. It can be very, very effective against that role. Uh, its armor was thick enough to be able to stop um, rifle projectiles. Uh, so it could be good against dealing with anti-infantry and light-skinned targets. Um, however, dealing with, dealing with uh, heavy skins such as Shermans, Pershings, that stuff, tanks, it would not do very much unless it hit from the side, which then it could definitely take out a Sherman with ease. Um, but the VK-16.02 Leopard uh, never saw production. It was only, I believe, a design. I actually think a couple of turrets were built. I don't know. I haven't looked into that part of the VK yet. But that is what the VK-16.02 Leopard was um another thing i kind of want to put out there uh the vk 30.01 h uh mainly people regard as the, the vk 45.01 p as being the only surviving vk example in the world such a, which you cannot which you can see uh but cannot see as its full form only because they didn't build many full, full, full forms of the VK-45.01P, but they put the VK-45.01P chassis on Ferdinands, and there are quite a couple Ferdinands in the world that are surviving. Uh, that chassis is a VK-45.01P chassis. However, the VK-30.01H, uh, well, we have info that uh, there's this picture, of a famous picture of two people with their dog standing next to what looks to be a destroyed Panzer III chassis on a target range that had been shot at by modern ammunition such as HEAT-FS, APFSDS, HESH, well not HESH, they didn't shoot HESH at it, otherwise it would be destroyed. But 
you know, APFSDS, APDS, modern ammunition. It's rusted out, completely destroyed, and on a target range in 1980. No one is of the wiser. They didn't know what it was. It was a pan to them, it was a Panzer III, and that's all it was. What that actually was, was a VK 30.01H chassis on a target range in 1980. The surviving example of the VK 30.01H. However, when people realized this and went back to find it, the VK chassis was gone. No one knows what happened to it. Uh, however, as recent research suggests, there is one VK 30.01H surviving in museum condition. That is on the last Dicker Max, Dicker Max in the world, which is at the Kubinka Tank Museum. It is believed that the Dicker Max is on a chassis of the VK 30.01H, and if I, I have looked at this, well, I haven't gone there, but I've looked at pictures, um, there is a very, very, very high striking resemblance of a VK 30.01H chassis. The viewing ports on the driver's side are exactly where they would be on the VK 30.01H. The slants on the armor are the exact same. Everything lines up so perfectly for it to be a VK 30.01H, which is why is it why is why it is believed that it is now that the VK 30.01H is now another surviving example of a VK tank. However, from my research, I have not discovered any other. VK tanks are surviving other than those two, the VK 45.01P and the VK 30.01H. Uh, currently, we're at 25 minutes, about to turn 26 on this podcast episode. Uh, so I think what I'm going to do is I am going to start to wrap it up here. Uh, as I said, I am going to start doing bigger podcasts as the last podcast of this uh, format. Uh, they're going to be bigger, uh, and I will not be spoiling what those podcasts are going to be about. You'll just have to listen to them to find out, but I can I can guarantee you they are going to be some pretty good podcast episodes. Uh, it's going to be a good change. Uh, so those are going to be some fun podcast episodes that I'm looking forward to, and I'm going to change those up. So that's what I'm looking forward to. Uh, I'm going to do the Bear Claw in a next week on Tuesday so looking forward to that as those are some good questions and I'm looking forward looking forward to those uh, so another thing about that is there will also be no more guests in the podcast due to this change um, I might have guests in here but they won't I won't really allow them to talk because well it's gonna be you know but maybe when I get done if I get done a little early we'll have some banter towards the end and you know so that's what I'm gonna really do now is I'm, that's gonna be the changes um, so that's what we're looking at now um, so yeah I think that'll be about it for today I think I've covered everything I wanted to cover um, so that'll be it and this officially marks the end of World War 2 podcast episode 7